it's David, and you're listening to the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. Really happy to have Emmanuel Sovich on the show today, who's a fantastic performer, arranger, and Tone Bass artist. If you're still not a member at Tone Bass, head on over to ToneBase.co and use the promo code PODCAST-3 for $15 off of your subscription. Let's go ahead and jump right into things. First time I discovered uh, Emmanuel's playing was a beautiful performance of Scarlatti on Tone Bass's YouTube page. So I thought we'd play another uh, sonata of his. This is uh, Sonata K178 in D major, and this is transcribed by David Russell. I kind of have a, a one general kind of principle, as it were, when I'm doing an arrangement or a transcription, which I consider to be slightly different things. But it's that hopefully you should be able to convey the expressive effect of the original medium on the new instrument. So that um, having said that, it, it doesn't necessarily mean like copying all the notes like of the original. It yeah. means like achieving more or less the same effect. So. Uh, on the transcription side, which I'd consider something a little bit more literal, when you sometimes, I'm sure you, you might have found this yourself, like you, you see a piece and you say, oh yeah, that would totally be doable on, on guitar. You just need to like write it out and maybe choose a slightly different key. 
And I think that's closer to the Scarlatti in a way, where I only required like a few adjustments to, to make it work. But then it's more about like, how do you finger it? And I, I really, really strongly believe that a fingering is like everything in the sense that it, it's the medium through which you convey musical ideas. And like, you can have very kind of poetic notions about how you should play a piece. But if your fingerings don't physically allow you to, to do that or play like a particular passage like legato as you want it or you know if you need to be jumping around then it's very difficult to, to do that so I think the actual process of finding fingerings is also one that deserves like a lot of attention uh, and then if it's Scarlatti again it's like the ornamentation well how do you deal with that you can go like the um, guitar route like just uh, do ornaments as however you find it more comfortable or you can say I'm going to imitate the harpsichord or uh, am I going to mix both types of trills like double string trills or single string trills and what's going to be my criteria for that. So you can kind of ask yourself uh, an awful lot of questions <laughs> like about uh, something which is like in this case it was really short. I think it's no longer than three minutes with mm -hmm. repeats, you know, so yeah, that yeah. means it's like <laughs> effectively like a minute and a half or a minute and 40 seconds of, of, of music that you're going through and trying to arrange, you know, uh, transcribe, I should say. <laughs> but. Um, so yeah, on, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, let's say there's a piece which is originally for cello and piano by Rachmaninoff, let's say. It's a dance, uh, oriental dance, I think. Okay. And uh, it's a really fascinating piece. It's really beautiful, very nostalgic and kind of um, atmospheric. And it has this passage in the middle, which will be... It's almost superfluous to kind of kind of describe in words that probably fail, but it, it has these um, figures in the piano, very high up, and doing like little trills with tons of notes. And on the piano, that sounds beautiful because it's so resonant and like pianissimo and kind of haunting. Yeah, you know. And then the cello has a very very beautiful lush melody. Um, if you do that on the guitar, I, I transcribe this for three guitars for guitar trio. Okay. If you I, I was trying to think, is that even possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Woo. Got me worried for a second. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's kind of an unusual um, thing, like Rachmaninoff on guitars. But anyways, if you try to transcribe this this passage of music, like literally doing all the notes, it just sounds so busy. And also, it kind of covers the register in which the one of the guitars will be doing the melody, and it kind of it just didn't work. So in the end, what I I did was just find like harmonics I could do uh, to in within the harmony of that effect of the piano and realize well actually that is drastically different in terms of the actual notes that we're playing uh, we're not playing you know these semi-demi-quavers uh, ornaments but in a way it achieves the expressive effect in a much more genuine way yeah. so I think that's kind of on going on the further side of, of kind of arranging uh, actually changing the, the material. And making it fit yeah. for the instrument. But yeah. in a way to kind of capture the original spirit. So it's like, I don't know, I was very inspired by people like Nicholas Harnoncourt, who you might or not have heard <laughs> of. He was a pioneer of the, what I like to call the hip movement, which is the historically informed or historically inspired performance movement, as some like to call it. And uh, this was a guy who... who played in Karajan's orchestra. I think he was like a cello in the... Philharmonic, Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, 
if I'm not mistaken. And at the same time, I think it was 1954, he founded this uh, group called Concentus Musicus Vian. And it was a group of buddies, you know, they got together and played with early instruments. And he started reading sources and like, how did they play music like hundreds of years ago? And... Uh, what's really interesting is that being one of the kind of fathers, as it were, of the historically informed performance movement of the early music movement, which is now kind of almost like a music um, business or arena of, it, of its own within this classical music thing, he he had kind of the freedom to go and conduct, I don't know, let's say the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, you know, when, okay. when he was already an established like early music yeah. specialist, you know, you, you, you could say. Or the chamber music, uh, chamber orchestra of, of Europe, or like Concertgebouw Amsterdam, like all these amazing, pretty like mainstream Very orchestras. Established, yeah. So in a way, I think it speaks tons for the fact that it's not the actual medium um, that you use, as it were. Or, like it's more about the concepts and the ideas behind it. You know, to kind of achieve the the expressive idea that you might be trying to convey. Yeah. So I think. It doesn't matter so much if you play like exactly with all the rules, uh, you know, of of baroque performance or something. It's more about kind of trying to reach the the spirit, as it were, of of what you're trying uh, to convey. So, um, not letting technical limitations of a certain yeah. instrument get in the way of the the musical direction. Yeah, or in a way, like. Uh, you can like try to make the most of the idiom of your instrument like everything i think has pros and cons like things it struggles to do which of course we can try and overcome and uh, that's what kind of brings guitar like technical level to such a an amazing kind of standard <laughs> nowadays um but also like realizing there are certain things which are just um comes more naturally to the instrument and maybe more beautifully you know so trying to Instead of think of it as, well, uh, damn, like I can't do this, you know, on the guitar. It's like, but perhaps I could do this other thing, you know, and it can sound like wonderful. So, for example, the Rachmaninoff thing I, I said, it's like I could give up and say, well, I can't play that passage on, of the piano. And I just won't transcribe it or try to find an alternative. Of course, it's a lot easier when it's in, like just full on arrangement of something, which is, let's say, a pop tune or something. Mm -hmm. Well, not that I do many pop tunes, but or like a, a folk, let's say yeah. a folk tune. Then you have the freedom of just choosing like all the best things that, you know, the guitar can do so wonderfully. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I kind of like that, that rather free approach of not being constricted yeah <laughs> you know just and being stuck in yeah exactly it's the exact it's more, notes it's more about like possibilities of what you can do you know so um another transcription i did which was lots of fun it was i think only the first movement of a haydn piano sonata for guitar and flute oh okay cool so uh that was lots of fun because there's certain bits in this movement which it, it kind of reaches i think is like a um, the first degree, like in second inversion, like the typical chord where you'd normally have like a cadenza or something. And, mm -hmm. you know, it just felt like, well, maybe just write out like a flute cadenza, you know, it's like, yeah. which isn't the original. But in, in a way, it kind of it's very much within the spirit of the of the time. And also, like, it's very easy to have a stuffy kind of rather regal conception of big composers like, I don't know, Haydn. There's this notion I don't know if it's so much here in the UK, but at least in Chile, of the, the kind of Papa Haydn, kind of the the, the father of the sonata form, uh -huh. the symphony and whatever. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like a bit stuffy, like, 
um, and yes, he wrote a hundred and I don't know how many symphonies and and whatever. But actually, like I'm, sh I think he had like a great sense of humor. He incorporated a lot of like folk. Uh, Hungarian music and his compositions. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty sure him or I don't know Mozart uh, would have been like just the coolest, easiest going like guys to hang out with. Like yeah, just having a beer with or something. <laughs> so, yeah, but in the so. day they were just people. I I think sometimes, and of course we should think very highly of these composers. They yeah. are amazing composers, Absolutely. but I I think we kind of forget that they were just people yeah. as well. And yeah, they would probably go Easy out to, and have like, a nice drink or a meal and yeah. have it have a nice time after a performance. And I feel a lot of them would be quite malleable uh, in today's era if, within reason, if people were approaching them about making these arrangements. Yeah. I think a lot of them would, would be really interested and, and yeah. flattered in a sense. I mean, if we think of modern-day composers, may, maybe I just know more kind of younger composers <laughs> than maybe not as many well-established composers, but I think they would be really excited at mm -hmm. the prospect of different instrumentations for, for certain pieces. Mm -hmm. um, Haydn has got to be beautiful on guitar, actually. I don't think I've heard much of it yeah, to begin with. Common. Yeah, I heard. Is a, that kind of the the inception for the idea that you just hadn't really heard Haydn on the guitar? There's this just this sonata I just really loved, which is so funny in D major. I don't remember the exact catalog number now, but it was. I just loved hearing it. I was like, well, I was playing with a flautist with Amy Yule, and she was this amazing flautist. I I studied with at the academy, and uh, I just thought it would be fun to do, basically. But. But yeah, like what you just mentioned about like these composers perhaps being really open or interested or uh, I'd like to think they might have been like a lot more creative and kind of relaxed about their own music than we might be today. Yeah. So, for example, there's this amazing uh, musicologist and pianist called Robert Levin, who I think he, he teaches at Harvard. Uh, he came to the Academy, the Royal Academy of Music at some point, and he talks about um, he gave an example of a of um, Mozart. It was either a sonata or a set of variations. I think it might have been. And he gives two examples. One um, edition where it's what we all know as you know the the, the kind of original composition, and then another edition which was, according to him, presumably done under the supervision of Mozart, where he just like embellishes everything like to the point where you kind of think like, what is this? Like it's is just it a joke? too <laughs> many notes. Exactly. And he says, well. If these, if this edition didn't exist, like the ornamented one, and anyone nowadays had done such an extravagant ornamentation, they would have said, "Oh no, that's tasteless. That's completely out of like, um, like Mozart's style yeah. or whatever he would have done." But actually, it's like you realize a lot of these people would have probably had so much more freedom about their own music than we might give them nowadays. Yeah, you know, there's this whole kind of idea of like a canonic, you know, interpretation which you really shouldn't mess with. And in a way, I think historically informed performance is cool because it messes with that, you know, it kind of uh, does quirky things, you know, to maybe provoke or maybe just because they genuinely find it more interesting or but in any case, I find it fascinating and a constant source of kind of inspiration, really, of not just being bobbed down with the right way to do it. It's like if, if anything, I think we can learn from historically informed practices is not like 
putting ourselves in the box of, or, of what we are allowed to do, but rather having tools and all these like ideas with which to expand our interpretation. Yeah. You know? So it's not constraining yourself. It's actually liberating yourself yeah. from uh, the stuff that you, you just generally do uh, like by, in, by instinct or tradition. Like you can actually be reflective of how am I playing this? How can I introduce these, these cool uh, practices that were part of you know of that time and you get some really interesting results like i don't know for example inegale notes like um we're very used to kind of playing long short dan daran dan. if you have like quavers written in some kind of french yeah. courant or something like it's done daran daran but sometimes it's very common to do it the opposite way like daran daran like it's a very simple example yeah or or like the whole idea of articulation like how you can join notes that are close together, you know, do them legato and then jumps, do them more articulately. And suddenly you realize, oh, that can bring out different dimensions in music or, but it's, all of these are like little tools which you can kind of just take inspiration from and use them as they might help you convey your own concept, your own idea of the music. I don't think it's like something to be bobbed down by. That's, yeah. that's the main thing. Think of it as an opportunity instead yeah. of a limitation. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. When I was a student thinking of doing competitions, I I kind of looked for everything I could get my hands on, like a, a book of someone, you know, written on competitions, like, oh, yeah, this will be like, <laughs> this will teach me how to do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I know there's a lot of people kind of interested in, in knowing about that. The, the thing about competitions, which I found like the most useful lesson um, coming from someone who isn't really a big competition person as myself. I mean, I, I don't think I've done like more than maybe 10 overall or something mm -hmm. like that, which I, I don't think is, is particularly large number. And oh, of different types, like some very small kind of school competitions. It includes the stuff I did when I was like 15 or 16. Yeah, yeah. And then this, the slightly kind of higher profile things I've done in, in, in late, later years. But... The one thing that has helped me the most is this kind of notion of how much do you emotionally depend on um, an external judgment, you know? How much do you emotionally depend on a competition? Because regardless of whether you, you win or not, like how much you do depend can affect like how positive or how uh, negative it can be for you. Let's say uh, you... Um, you really depend, like you, you, you feel your self-worth is, is kind of attached to how you do in a competition. So if you do badly, of course, it kind of depresses you and you feel maybe I'm not such a good guitarist, should I yeah. give up or whatever, especially if you're like starting off, you kind of think, oh, this is not for me, maybe. Uh, but even if you do well, it's like you think, oh, yeah, wow, I'm amazing. You know, I just won this huge competition. Like I, I should be playing everywhere. Now. That's not a healthy result like either, you know, if you have this inflated sense of, of self-worth just because someone else told you you were amazing, you know, it's there will be, I think, as far as I've heard, like in, in careers of, of many like seasoned performers, like there are always ups and downs, you know, and there'll be a point where perhaps you're not doing that well or you kind of have a few months that you're feeling, you know, I'm not not my best shape or whatever. And, and what's going to happen then when you're relying so heavily on other people's judgments about your playing, you know? So in, in that sense, it's, it's kind of a very simple lesson, but just to be a bit more detached emotionally from the result, 
doesn't mean you don't care and you don't try your best, but it means, you know, you're just aware that even if you win a competition, there are probably, you know, dozens, hundreds of other guitarists out there who can probably play, uh, if not everything, like at least several things like better than you. Mm -hmm. In the same way that there are perhaps other people who are at a slightly kind of earlier stage in their development, you know? So it's, I don't think it's something to be particularly kind of proud of in, 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 a, in a kind of egoistic way, like, yeah, I'm amazing or, yeah, or yeah. no, I'm not that good. You know, it's, you kind of understand that everyone is at a different stage in their development musically and in their career as well. So I think that's the, like the one single thing I've, I've learned to be the most useful is that if you, you get into a competition, you kind of, you, it's mostly dealing with yourself rather than with others. Yeah. You know, so just go in there and play your heart out and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And kind of try to be better than, than yourself. That's my challenge that I've tried to, it's what's helped me kind of survive it really. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I could stand like going to a competition and thinking, oh gosh, like half of those guys are my friends and uh, I feel play better than me. It's like, because, you know, they are your friends. You appreciate their, their playing and you usually really like it. So it's like, if you have that approach, you can kind of start doubting yourself a lot. So it has to be much more about, well, okay, so this is my standard. I just want to push myself that bit further and what can I do to to achieve that and if you succeed in that then the results are really secondary in the sense yeah. that if you feel you played better than you did you know before you spent like two months preparing like really hardcore then that in itself is is a victory if on top of that you happen to win then well fantastic you maybe get Buy yourself a, a beer yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and uh and it's been cool so like the I think for me the most exciting like the biggest um competition for me was probably the one I did in November 2017. It's called Dr. Luis Sigal International Music Competition, which is held in Viña del Mar in Chile. Okay. Uh, so interestingly, I got to watch this competition when I was growing up, when I was studying at the conservatory. I think I started studying when I was about 13 years old. Okay. And I would go watch this competition. And the, the interesting thing as well is that it's um, open to violin cello piano voice and guitar and they alternate or they rotate rather every year so you only get uh, each of these instruments every five years oh okay gotcha so i started so they aren't competing all at once it's... they're not competing uh, between instruments it's gotcha. like this year's guitar this year's piano this year's whatever and uh but it's a once every five years type opportunity for exactly. each instrumentalist yep. yeah and uh I remember I was, I was really excited to go watch these amazing cellists and violinists and suddenly the guitar version was there and you think, oh gosh, these are amazing players. It's like, I'll never do something like this. And sure enough, like 10 years later, it's yeah. like, I find myself applying mainly because, uh, well, they're one of the very few, I think it's, if not the only, one of only two competitions in Latin America, which is part of the World Federation of International Music Competitions. So they usually kind of uphold a, a very high standard of organization. And all the people who are selected from videos, like I think it was a 30 minute video you had to send in of your repertoire are, have their, their travel and their expenses and accommodation paid for, which was very attractive for me living in the UK because it meant like I had a free trip over Back. home. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, it's a long flight to pay for. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, I made the video. I was like, not convinced at all. Uh, I was telling um, my partner, then now my, my wife, like, oh, I really don't think I should send it in. And she was like, well, send it. At the very least, you get a, you know, free trip home. Yeah. And I did it. I got it. And then it was like, gosh, we, I, now I really should practice. <laughs> and 
it was like, okay, let's just do it seriously. Had a few months uh, when I found out that I was going and the amount of repertoire was a bit intimidating because it was three live rounds. So the first one was something like 40 minutes, uh, 30 to 40 minutes, including a set piece, including some Bach, uh, Latin American music, etc. Do you remember and what the set piece was? Yes, it was a piece by Juan Antonio Sanchez, the composer I mentioned earlier, oh, okay. this Chilean composer. Very cool. And it was a set of variations, uh, interestingly, also um, by Violeta Parra, on a theme by Violeta Parra, this, this popular um, songwriter. So then there was the second round, which added up to about 40 to 45 minutes, including like big 20th century sonata and scarlatti and, and this Spanish is music. New music compared to the first round. Yeah, it's always, wow. it's always different. Uh, the video you can choose from the, the live repertoire, but yeah, the actual yeah. live rounds are Each different. Each round yeah. is totally different repertoire. Yeah, and then the third live round with orchestra, you had to prepare two concertos. And two? Yeah, yeah, and they would, choo- wow. they would choose one, basically. So they'd say, okay, like you passed, uh, tomorrow you need to rehearse, or like in two days it might have been, you need to play this concerto. And you're just like inside begging that it's the one that you practice <laughs> that little bit more. <laughs> so. why, why, do they, why do they do that? Is it because they want to make sure there's a different, there's a couple different concertos being performed, or do they just... Want to make it a little more challenging in regards I, I, to... I, th- I think it might be both things because I have seen a guitar, sorry, a cello version, a cello edition of this competition where they just chose all three of them, the Tchaikovsky Rococo variations. It was like, oh, okay. come on, like, why would you do that if, you, if everyone <laughs> had a varied program? <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, in this case, we had three different concertos. I think it's it's part a both bit of both. Reasons. Yeah, exactly. So which ones did you prepare and what I, did you have to I play? I prepared Aranjuez and Castelnuovo Tedesco okay. concerto. Yeah, and I got to play Castelnuovo Tedesco concerto, which I love. So I feel I count myself as as lucky. It was like, yeah, that's that's the one I wanted to play. Yeah. And it was like recorded and later broadcast live. So it was like like a lot of it felt like a lot of pressure and I remember I think I kind of broke broke down after the first day and like physically like I started getting this cold after traveling and it turned into a really bad flu and I had like muscle aches so oh no and it was to the point where there was this one day where I it couldn't like get out of bed I think I practiced only 30 minutes like in great pain because I I just felt like my body was giving up yeah but in a way after I passed through to the final it was like like to hell with it it's like I, I just didn't care about anything it was just, like, just go it. for it whatever and then i played and it was uh it's like very li- a very liberating feeling yeah. when you feel like you're you have like everything against you and you you kind of try that bit harder and it's yeah it, it, so that was like for me the one of the most uh significant competition experiences of the few i've had and and, and you won it yeah, yeah, there, I got, okay. I got I the just, prize. <laughs> that's what I thought. I just want to make it clear for which, listeners. Which was that's really, fantastic. It was really special because it meant I I got an invitation over, like a second invitation, only a few months later to go to uh, Frutillar, which is a beautiful city down in the south of Chile. And for those who might not know it, it's it's basically next to a beautiful lake with a with a volcano in the far distance. And they have this amazing theater called Teatro del Lago, built by a um, um, a German family and this is a theater that they've managed to get up to a huge status like Yo-Yo Ma or like Maxim Bengadov performed there and and they have a beautiful hall for like 14 or 1500 people and I got to perform the Tedesco concerto there with the Chilean National Youth Orchestra which was really nice and got to do a recital like 
the day two days after i think and it was just a lovely visit a second visit to chile so in a way yeah. it was like it was fantastic because it meant not only like winning a competition the usual things and getting a concert but getting a concert like in a place where I, i'm That's from so meaningful. you know and, and yeah. getting to go back home visit family so that was really special and yeah way. and uh sounds amazing yeah and it's so interesting hearing about kind of the mental mindset at the end of it you know not saying being sick mm-hmm. helped at all and i think quite frankly it's <laughs> I, amazing I, I, actually, i actually think it did <laughs> well mentally speaking <laughs> yeah because you just decided to just do it and not yeah, you have so much more drive it. yeah like, i mean this is a really goofy parallel to make I, i'm an awful awful golfer but i love playing <laughs> but it's such probably a mental... 10 times better than me <laughs> oh, yeah. uh Probably not. <laughs> We're probably even then. But, um, it, you know, it's it, it's such a mental thing. And it's kind of every shot's a performance. And, yeah. you know, you, you hit your ball, then you got to walk over mm-hmm. for the next shot. And it's you're, you're only thinking about it for three minutes about that shot, how you're going to mess it up and everything. But, <laughs> you know, I find it, if I just go and hit it and not overthink it, just do it. Yeah. Not to say it's always a perfect shot or anything, but it usually goes much smoother. And I, I think sometimes with performing, you know, and I've been very lucky that I haven't suffered too much from performance anxiety. Everyone does to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Um, I haven't been too cursed by that. But I, I think sometimes you just got to go for it because when you're you're talking about it, if you're overthinking things, you know, you're yeah. playing at a competition against your friends and you think your friends are better, then you start down your plane and then you're warming up and you think, yeah. oh, this sounds bad and my tone's scratchy and yeah. all this. If you just do it, yeah, definitely. just think of the music and listen to it yeah whatever helps you like let go yeah and, and just yeah it's it's always better. just let the music yeah. take you yeah so how long have you been doing euro strings for so euro strings it's um a one-year thing so after winning the london guitar competition in october last year i think uh the first festival i did must have been somewhere sometime around march i think okay and then it lasted all the way to through till July, where there were about six or seven festivals that I attended. Oh, wow. As a Eurostrings artist. So, yeah, it was really exciting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And were you performing at those festivals or attending as a student? So the deal uh, with Eurostrings artists is it's basically the winners of each of these uh, festivals, as you might know already. And they carry us around. They get us to do a series of activities, which are really fun. Usually it involves playing chamber music with our colleagues who are traveling with us. Uh, it'll involve doing a little bit of teaching, also taking a masterclass with some great artists, like, I don't know, I had with Goran Krivokapic, uh, or some others had with Ricardo Gallen, I think, with the uh, Sad Brothers, David Russell, etc. Like, yeah. those kind of people. Um, a little bit of outreach, which occasionally uh, can be, like, really, really special experiences playing for people who usually don't have access to yeah. classical music or don't even really know what, what it is. So there's this fascinating experience in in Italy, for example, in Motola, where we visited um, a, a place where they had a lot of people with uh, Down syndrome, and there, it was like the sweetest experience ever because they were just like so open to like uh, listen to us, and the place they had like prepared them really well in terms of um, you know telling them what they were going to listen to. I think they did like some kind of manual. Um, things like little guitars that they they how, how do you say like they uh, when you would do it with your your hands like clay i think clay oh okay. yeah 
uh, like little sculptures yeah, first. Yeah. And it was like really sweet and it was very moving, like much more than just a regular concert. Quite yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that, it's, it was really interesting. And uh, well, besides that, you just get a lot of contact with artistic directors of festivals. They kind of telling you, you know, could you play this kind of music or don't play this kind of music because of the audience and blah, blah, blah. So it kind of gives you an experience uh, about how artistic directors of festivals might be thinking and it's the kind of people you might be dealing with later hopefully yeah, yeah. so and also you do get a few solo concerts so yeah. and sometimes they're like really really nice venues so it was, it was a cool experience yeah absolutely so you were you went to seven different festivals or? i think if i can correctly it must have been yes about do you seven remember them ahead or is it hard to keep track at this point yeah i'll try i mean let's see the first one I think it must have been the Seged International Guitar Festival, where David Pavlovic is the, um, the artistic director, with a stopover in Subotica, which is Serbia. So it's really nearby. Oh, okay. And it was really cool because there was a lot of, you know, taking trains involved. And, yeah. <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful way to start. Uh, the other one I did, I'll start counting with my fingers, see if I got them all, uh, is in Finland, in Tampere. That was just amazing, like the White Knight and everything. Hmm. And the organizer, Tommy, there was fantastic. He took us out. Um, kind of just, just to see places and there was a midnight cruise uh, just re- really lots of fun Tallinn International Guitar Festi- Festival in Estonia was also particularly memorable because uh, we got to go to the Arvapert Center which was recently opened inaugurated I think was it the year before late, like late in 2018 and it's basically a center which was built very near where Arvapert lives. And Arvapert is like one of the most amazing, at least for me, like contemporary composers. Yeah. I think he's his music or he's the most performed living composer. Is he? Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm I've been told. I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah. I mean, he is amazing. Exactly. And kind of uh, so many people from around the world seem to enjoy his music. So it was it was really beautiful to get to play in what was a, a beautiful hall. And... Uh, got to meet him as well. And amazingly, uh, there was like a surprise visit. Uh, Sting was visiting Arvapert, like showing really? his admiration probably, or like just <laughs> getting to hang out with, with this person he admired. I think he had a concert later that evening in Tallinn. And uh, amazingly, like a few of us got to perform for them, like for Arvapert and Sting. So that was... So you performed for Arvapert and yeah, Sting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, wow. was, it was like the coolest thing ever. And it was completely unexpected. Like... I was actually, it was funny because um, Tite, the um, the artistic director, he was like really busy going around and I asked him a question and he kind of ignored me and I felt like, oh, like, why is he ignoring me? And then suddenly I realized he says to everyone, like, come over, come over, like, there's something I, uh, you need to see. And it was Sting. And then it's like, I realized, oh, yeah, he was just like aware of all, all this amazing stuff happening. And then he said, okay, who wants to play for for them and I just kind of rushed, got my guitar and <laughs> played something. You gotta do it, yeah. Do you remember what you played? Or? Uh, yeah, actually I played an arrangement of mine of uh, a song by a Chilean author called Violeta Parra. She was the most amazing popular musician and kind of folk musician. She also uh, collected a lot of music from, traditional music from Chile. And this was one of her original compositions called Gracias a la Vida, which translates uh, rather unpoetically in English as uh, thank you to life or thanks okay. to life. But it's a very beautiful, actually a sad uh, melody, which she wrote uh, one year before committing suicide, which makes it kind of particularly poignant in a yeah. way. Um, but yeah, that, that was just something, because I'm half 
Chilean, half British. I thought, yeah, well, it might be cool. Sting is a songwriter. He might perhaps know who Violeta Parra is. Was he receptive to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, we got to kind of chat with him yeah. briefly afterwards, and he was he was very warm. He he was gracious enough to let me take a, a picture with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just <laughs> played to him. Nice. You deserve it. I mean, I, I've heard he's very interested in. Uh, in classical music and, and classical guitar. Of course, Andy Summers, the guitarist from The Police. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know The Police aren't playing together now. He He's a avid classical guitarist, and he's done duos with Ben Verdery, and apparently he goes to a lot of different classical guitar concerts in the Los Angeles area. But there's a funny story with Stig, actually, with uh, my old teacher, Bill Cannonguyser. Mm-hmm. Do you know about this? Or? No, I don't. I'm very interested <laughs> yeah, I, 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 Okay, now I'm going off a little bit. I apologize, Please, but it's funny. So Bill... <laughs> Arranged when he was younger, he arranged the Bach Chacon into E mm-hmm. minor uh, with the intention when you have that, um, well, when it's in D minor, that A drone in the yeah. second uh, minor section, mm-hmm. um, being able to play string. that as an open B yeah. just uh, to open things up. Um, and I, I don't know what happened and how Sting heard about it, but Bill was backstage. I, and I forgot, I'm not telling the story very well. I forgot if it was a police concert or anything like that. But he gave the he gave the arrangement to Sting, which was written out by hand. Oh, it wow. was before uh, notation softwares and everything was really readily available. Mm-hmm. And he gave it to him, and Sting was very uh, uh, happy to have it and, and receptive. And then when Bill walked out, he realized, oh, shoot, I didn't make myself a copy. <laughs> so Sting has got the only arrangement out there that Bill made for the Chacon. I yeah. think he still has it in his head, but it's like he's not going to ask him <laughs> for yeah. it back. It's just oh, well, funny yeah. how it goes sometimes. Yeah, if you have one person you could, like, give your original score to. I, I, I guess I, so. I'd probably choose Sting. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, <laughs> I think I would make an exception f- yeah. for that. Speaking of Chilean repertoire, do you mix or maybe not mix, but incorporate uh, that music into uh, your classical programs yeah, a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this uh, Violeta Parra arrangement I did is perhaps an example of more popular music. Mm-hmm. But actually, I'm very keen on working with young composers, young Chilean composers particularly, who are friends of mine, people I've perhaps studied with or uh, have friendships with over time. And it's, it's lots of fun to basically just anyone who's willing to do it kind of say hey you're interested in writing a piece for a guitar and yeah. take it from there and and uh, more often than not like you you get really interesting music that that is worth um sh- showing you know so uh, having this dual kind of personality or or um identity in a way being half british half chilean more or less in equal parts of my my father is british my mom's chilean i've lived more or less half my life in in each part yeah i speak both languages uh although in each part i'm kind of recognized as a foreigner (laughs) it's it's a bit sad but like it's when i'm here it's like oh i'm the chilean guy when i'm there it's like oh he's a british guy so in a way it, it works to my advantage in the sense that i get to showcase or kind of bring together these two cultures yeah. in a certain way through uh, through my music. So I have, uh, as I said, a lot of pieces I've worked on with composer friends from Chile, and I really enjoy playing those here yeah, in, in yeah. the UK. And the, the opposite is also true. Like whenever I have some British music, I I, I really enjoy playing it in, in Chile, and it kind of makes for something uh, interesting. So I I like that kind of duality. But yeah, most recently, I think the. 
the one of the most interesting projects I, I did was a commission to a Chilean composer called Juan Antonio Sanchez, who is very interesting because he has one foot in each world of uh, folk music and classical music. He studied classical guitar, but he grew up playing lots of traditional Latin American instruments like Sampoña, this like, uh, I guess you'd call it a pan flute. Okay. Uh, guitars, charangos, whatever, you know. And uh, so he's very much into traditional music and bringing it to the classical area in a way he publishes his scores we can we classical guitarists you know can can kind of play that in chile he's he's a big figure and i asked him would he compose something based on uh, british music and originally the idea was to do something with the beatles and i wrote to the the people in charge of like the copyrights very yeah. excited you know could you <laughs> could you do this we'll, we'll pay you know for using these songs and whatever and uh, i think that must have been six months ago i ha haven't yet heard a reply <laughs> so oh, we no. kind of kind of soon gave up and just realized it's easier to go with traditional folk melodies so i just got him to write a fantasy on three traditional English songs, folk oh, okay. songs, and it was it was lots of fun. I got some funding from the Anglo-Chilean Society, appropriately, which is based in London and and tries to kind of establish a cultural exchange between yeah. uh, UK and Chile. And it That's was premiered perfect. just a few weeks ago at the London Guitar Festival. So, very cool. Yeah, so that that was kind of yeah uh, nice. And it's I mean it's it was very kind of Juan Antonio Sanchez and very selfish of myself to kind of <laughs> just use it as an excuse to. Uh, kind of connect these two countries. So. No, it's uh, fantastic. Because for myself, I haven't heard too much uh, Chilean mm -hmm. uh, folk music. So to get some of that influence into a classical guitar program, that's fantastic. I know that was uh, using English folk songs. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you play a lot of traditional music as well? No, I don't think I'd, I'd be lying if I said I did. Uh, it hasn't really been part of my, let's say, upbringing to kind of play folk mm -hmm. music or... Um, it's something I've kind of gotten myself into through friends, perhaps. Like yeah. I have uh, several friends I grew up with studying guitar in Chile, very good friends who had a great passion for people like Violeta Parra or Victor Jara is another very well-known songwriter. And <clears throat> these are people who also have a very strong political uh, relevance, meaning in, in culture, because they were part of the um, like the left. Uh, wing politics in a time where it was very difficult to be uh, left wing in, in Chile. I'm not sure how much your your listeners might be aware of this, but in Chile in, in '73 there was a a coup. So the the militaries basically took over government. <laughs> they killed the, the president Salvador Allende, who was socialist, and uh, they started persecuting a lot of artists and killing really people uh, who were too close to the left, you know, and, and actively supporting this or promoting um, basically Marxist or socialist politics. And Victor Jara was one of them. And it's a very sad story because he, you see videos of him performing and, and he's like the sweetest guy ever. The way he spoke, the way he sang, it was just so tender. And he played guitar like really well for, for a songwriter. He yeah. could do proper accompaniments. And he was uh, tortured. He, he had his hands kind of bashed before they just oh. decided to kill him and in, in that order for some reason they just really wanted to make him suffer and it's so it's it's really heartbreaking and uh what's really worrying actually is that nowadays in in chile like the, there is a big commotion socially because uh since the, the military government basically they they installed capitalism or neoliberalism 
liberalism in its most kind of savage form. Yeah. <laughs> and over the years, it's made the country kind of grow um, economically and, and everything, but it's also increased the inequality. So mm -hmm. the poorer sectors, areas of, of society have been really marginalized and they're not now kind of crying out and saying, well, uh, we can't take it anymore. So now for the last, what is it, five or six weeks, there have been demonstrations on the street, like uh, very fair demonstrations of, yeah. of, of the, the Chilean people. In, in Santiago, for example, a city of almost 7 million people, there was the biggest march ever of, I think it was 1.2 million people, if you can imagine that, like almost, what's that, a sixth or a fifth of the, the population out on the street just saying, you know, something needs to change. Yeah. And it's still very much an issue. I mean, more than 20 people have died. Uh, they got the militaries out on the street for, for a period of, of a week or a bit more as well, which had devastating consequences. And there still doesn't seem to be a clear path to resolving that. So in a way, these I've kind of gone on, on a tangent a little bit, but these figures like Violeta Parra or Victor Jara, if maybe two months ago there were symbols of like something that should never happen again you know the repression of uh, of the people by its own state you know yeah they somehow acquire a great relevance nowadays saying well actually this is happening again it's like and it, it really shouldn't so um so yeah it's somehow i've, I've started uh, valuing this even more than i did before through my yeah. friends like just in the past few During weeks these or months. Times, yeah. yeah and it's absolutely so it's it's i mean it's it's a very small thing that we can do as as artists you know in this huge kind of political context the social movement it's you kind of feel a bit hopeless yeah so in a way to have this this tiny little outlet to say well you know i i, I do what i can is is like um it helps a lot like on a very personal emotional yeah. level Thank you, Emmanuel, for being on the show. And thank you to all listeners for tuning in this season. This is the final episode uh, for this season before the holidays. But fear not, we've got a really exciting season four up and coming. We'll be making an official announcement soon. Until then, I hope you enjoy whatever holiday you celebrate. Have a happy new year. And I'm going to leave you with a beautiful performance that was done for Open Strings Berlin. This is Violetta Parra's Gracias a la Vida, arranged by Emmanuel. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast.